We're going to do one other thing before we get into the sermon this morning. If you've been around uh, here at the church for a while, hopefully you have uh, seen this or heard this definition that I have given you before about what we, what we believe about church membership here at the church. This is the definition that I have given to you. I have a whole sermon on this. It's available on our website. If you go to nelsonvilleag.org slash members, uh, you'll see, or membership, you'll see a page there set up for that, and you can find a link to that sermon directly. But this is the definition I've given you of what we believe membership to be. Church membership is a covenant between a local church and a Christian, with the church committing to spiritual oversight, discipleship, and care for the Christian, and the Christian committing to serving, submitting to, and investing in the local church and its mission. This morning, we have the joy of celebrating a membership commitment being made. So Maxine, if you would come this morning to the front here, she is going to stand before this church body and she's going to make this covenant, this commitment. Yeah, we can clap. That's good. Like two of you are ready for it. Awesome. Maxine stands here to make this morning a commitment to this church body to become a member of Nelsonville Assembly. She stands here First and foremost, because she's trusting Christ alone for her salvation and having received that salvation, she knows there's a great value and benefit into joining in formally with other believers to receive care personally, to be an active part of this community and the mission that we are on to proclaim Christ all throughout this region. So she's committing this morning to affirming and supporting the church's mission statement, which is, I'll put on the screen for you to remind you, we exist to make disciples who are growing together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and proclaiming his gospel and glory as their personal mission. She wants to be a part of that mission as we seek to fulfill it here. And the core values of who we are as a people, we believe in our church, is that we are Christ-centered, we are Bible-believing, praying, discipleship-driven, and family-focused. And she wants to be a part of living out those values. So this morning, Maxine is committing to following and submitting to the spiritual oversight of the leadership of this church. She is personally committing to pray for and support and be involved in the gathering and serving of this local church. The scriptures tell us that identifying with the local body, being accountable to spiritual leadership through God's ordained pastor or pastors is a very good thing for us. And it is part of how God intends to bring joy and growth into our lives personally. So she's read and understood the command of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, which tells all Christians, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This morning, as she seeks to obey that command of Scripture, I commit as her pastor to live out the command and charge given to me in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, where I am told to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So my job as pastor is to be an example for her and for each member here to care as a shepherd would care for the sheep, to give oversight and counsel and leadership so that God would grow and bless all those that are part of this church body, that we would all grow in the joy that we should have as we follow Christ and serve him daily. So you, the current members of Nelsonville Assembly who are here, are going to make a commitment to Maxine as well. As a local church, our part of the definition that we started talking about this morning is that we would provide discipleship and care and love for her. And that's a commitment you will make this morning. So as Maxine stands before us to join as an active member of this church, 
If you are a member of this church this morning, would you stand with me to welcome her into our membership and join me in praying over her this morning? Praise God. I'll invite the rest of you, if you would stand and join us in prayer as well. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on her and upon our church as we move forward. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for Maxine and the commitment that she is making this morning to join with this group of people standing here in this room who have been called by you and loved by you and placed on mission by you in this local area. Lord, we thank you that as she stands here ready to, to join in to the, to the mission that we are on, we are committing ourselves to her as well, Lord. So we pray that your blessing would rest upon her. You would cause her to grow in her joy and her love and her knowledge of who you are. And Lord, you would bless this church through her as she uses the gifts and talents that you have given her and put inside her and designed her to use for your glory and for the furthering of this task that we have before us. Lord, we ask your blessings upon our church. We ask for you to unify our hearts in love, in pursuit of you, Lord, that everything that would distract us, everything the enemy would put before us, Lord, you would remove those things that we would see clearly what it is you have called us to do, who you intend for us to be, and Lord, we would live as passionate followers of you, centered upon you every day, in every circumstance, in everything that we do. We thank you for our sister. We thank you for the joy of celebrating this commitment today, and we ask your blessing upon all of us in this church family together. It's in your beautiful, powerful name we pray, Lord Jesus, and everyone said, amen. 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 Absolutely. You may be seated this morning. Well, we are in our 15th week of the series that we have been going through in the book of Exodus. Took a little break last week with our guest missionaries, Dr. Mark Hosfeld and his wife, Linda, who are here with us. And, and I'm very happy to, to share with you that uh, starting on the first, coming up at the, the beginning of this next month, we have pledged our support of POC7, the ministry that we heard about last week. Our church will be partnering with that ministry on an ongoing basis every month as part of our missions commitments. We're excited to help reach out to to the Muslim world, specifically in Pakistan, through those resources that are being produced there. And we're, we're grateful that we as a church body have the resources to be able to invest in things like that. So I'll encourage you to be praying for POC7 and for Dr. Hosfeld and for Linda and the ministries they oversee and the things that they are doing as well. This morning, as we return to the book of Exodus, I want us to, to talk this morning about remembrance and reflection. Remembrance and reflection. What we're going to see in this sermon today is the purpose of the practice that God institutes here in the book of Exodus for the Old Testament period, and then how he's refined this in the ministry and teaching of Jesus into what is to be celebrated more fully in the Christian church, and what we will celebrate at the end of this service this morning in what we call the Lord's Supper. So if you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 12 again this morning, page 63 in the Pew Bibles, and we're going to look at the meaning of the Passover as God establishes this practice of remembrance here in the midst of the events that we talked about just two weeks ago, the last sermon in this series. The chapter starts out and gives us, from the very first verse, this indication of how important these events of the final plague and the Passover that takes place really are in the mind of God. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. 
So understand, what, up until this point, they, they've had this calendar and this, this understanding of how, how a year works. And at this moment in Exodus chapter 12, it is so important what God is about to do here in the Passover and in the final plague that he actually reorders the entire calendar for his people to be this now, this month, celebrating what I'm about to do will now become the first month of the year for you. Everything will change on how you mark the passage of time. I want it to center around the remembrance of what I'm about to do in this moment. That's a pretty amazing thing for God to do. And it underscores just how important it is what God's about to do in the final plague and the Passover of his people. The principle is this. God wants the lives of his people to revolve around recognizing and responding to his redeeming work in this world. Like the, that's supposed to be the center for us, is what he has done, how he's redeemed, the work that God's about. That is supposed to be what everything in our lives revolves around. That's not, that's not a peripheral thing to be added in. This is the very center, the very heart of what God intends for his people to think about and live in light of. And so he makes this the, the central point of the Israelites' calendar. This now for you is the start of the year, and this celebration, which we'll see in just a moment, is the first thing you are to do in the new year. And just as it's supposed to be central for the Israelites, it's to be central for us. The rhythm of our daily lives, of our weekly lives as Christians, should revolve around the remembrance of these same things in God's redeeming work. Not a day should pass when we do not think about and live in light of God's work in our lives. Not a day should pass for a Christian where we don't dwell for, for a bit upon his work of salvation, his work of redemption, how he has forgiven us, how he's transformed us, what he's calling us to do in this world. This should be what marks our daily lives. This thought, this focus should be in the heart of every single Christian. And this is why we're commanded, not suggested, we're commanded by God in the scripture not to forsake the gathering of his people. Not to think church is a thing I'll just add in whenever it's convenient, whenever it doesn't conflict with my plans or agenda or whatever. No, this is a command by God to gather together with the saints, to sit under the preaching of the word, to lift up our worship to him, surrounded by brothers and sisters, focused upon the same thing, the redeeming work of God in this world. This is what is to mark the rhythm of our lives. God wants his people to get this priority right. So in Exodus chapter 12, he restructures the entire calendar of the Israelite people so that this month, when these events take place, now becomes the first month of the year for them from that day forward. And dropping down to verse 14 here in chapter 12, we read about how he intends for the rituals to be put into place in this month that they would be noted and celebrated from that day forward. The day that he moves in great power in the final plague, the 14th day of the month, and the day he passes over Israel in mercy, this is to be for them a memorial day. Look at Exodus 12, 14. This day, the, the 14th day, shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. God establishes literally this day of remembrance for his people to remind them constantly, year after year after year, of what it is that God has done. And to, to make the actions 
and the meaning of these things stick more clearly in the people's mind, God attaches a feast to it. Because our creator God, who designed us, knows how important food is to us. And how attaching a certain food to a holiday will trigger memories. That's true for us, right? Like when you think about grilled food, chips, maybe it's baked beans and salad, whatever you have, you're thinking 4th of July, right? Or you think about turkey and mashed potatoes and corn or pumpkin and apple pie. That's, I mean, that's Thanksgiving, right? I mean, you may have some other sides, you may have some other things, but, but you and I, for most people in our context, our culture, we think about certain foods and attach them to certain holidays. That's just part of what it means to have that celebration. And God here knows the importance of food, and so he actually assigns a certain food, a very particular food, and activities around that food to become the center of this celebration, the feast and the festival that he's giving to his people. And notice, nobody's going to get to debate or modify it, right? <laughs> so, so there's no arguments that get to take place over whether we're having ham or turkey or quail or some other thing for the main dish this year. Anybody ever have that, that conversation, right? Or, or the discussion around whether we're going to have that classic, well-loved, my personal favorite, the green bean casserole, or we're going to do some healthier version of it that we found in some health food magazine that doesn't have any of the good stuff in it. That's just my house. We have that conversation. Okay. <laughs> In my house, it's always, it's always, like, everything's put back on the table every single year for Malia. It's like, well, it's a holiday coming up. Why don't we try something new? No. Let's go back to the traditional tried and true, right? And so we have this conversation over and over. God doesn't allow for that conversation with how he establishes the feast here for his people in Exodus chapter 12. He lays out, here is exactly what I want you to eat. Here's the central purpose, focus of the meal for his people. Look at verse 15. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of all of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Well, that's a, that's a strong command here, right? Again, no variation is allowed here. Here is the item to eat, this unleavened bread, meaning bread that's made with, with no yeast. It is the bread to be used in the celebratory meal of the Passover day, starting on the 14th day of the month, and then eaten for the entire week of feasting that is to follow the Passover day each and every year, verses 18 to 20. So in the first month, this month that he's now made, the first month of the year, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat only unleavened bread. So God's not interested in a debate here about what's on the menu, right? No options laid out for people to get to choose from. No variations you can adopt depending on what you prefer or don't prefer. No principles on how to create your own family's special traditions or modify things to suit your personal taste preferences. Here is what God specifically commands his people to eat. It is unleavened bread. So why? <laughs> Why unleavened bread? What's the point of that? Is God, is God really that concerned? Is unleavened bread better than leavened bread? Is this a, a principle we should broaden out to the rest of our lives? You know, not just take it for seven days, but all year, Lord. We, just, we won't have any yeast. We won't make bread that way. No, there's a specific reason. There's a symbolism that's being conveyed here to the people, a lesson he's intending to teach them through this feast, which they will practice over and over and over again, year after year after year after year. 
What God is wanting his people to understand through the requirement of unleavened bread, through the requirement of removing the leaven from their homes entirely for this entire week, is he wants them to understand the seriousness and the impact of sin, and he wants them to get a foreshadow of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, leaven is used in multiple places throughout the scripture as an illustration of what sin is like. Jesus uses it this way in Luke chapter 12, for instance, uh, verse 1. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So, so what Jesus does in this teaching here is he's, he's telling people the sinfulness of hypocrisy, of, of right, trying to look good on the outside, trying to say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm God's person, I follow him, I do what he says, but inside you're, you're dead, it's not really true, you're just living a, a false veneer outside, right? He says that sinfulness is like leaven. His point is to illustrate it does what leaven does. It starts out small, perhaps, but it grows, and it spreads, and, and everything it comes in contact with is impacted by it. Paul draws out the application of leaven in this, this explanation of how sin is like it in connecting the Passover events to Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, read this. For do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is really important for us to grasp. I want us to dwell on this because there's a connection here between the symbolism of the Passover and the message of the gospel that we need to understand. Between the symbolism of requiring the use of unleavened bread and the fulfillment that Christ brings and the gift of Christ's gospel in the lives of his people. What the Bible would tell us about our own nature, about the, the sin that we struggle with, is that you and I are deeply infected with sin already from the moment of our birth, right? We enter in with the leaven already there. You and I, like every other human being, were born in sin because of the fall of our first parents. And that sin that is in us, it works its way into every aspect of who we are. Just like leaven, a little bit of it will leaven the entire batch Sin impacts everything within us. Our feelings, our intellect, our passions, our pursuits, the words we use, our thoughts we have, the attractions we have, the dispositions towards certain things, all of those things is impacted by this sin that we struggle with from the moment of our conception. We're not as evil as we could be in every single moment, thank God, by, for his common grace restraining that. But every aspect of our lives is impacted by the sin within us. So if that's true, and the Bible makes clear that's, that's true, we've talked about this, I mean, for, for three years, we've talked about the reality and the dark depth of sin, right? If this is all true, how is it that Paul could say here that we could be cleansed, the leaven could be removed from us, we could be actually unleavened without sin? How is that possible? If from the moment of our conception we struggle with sin? Well, Paul writes... In this very text, the way you and I can become unleavened, freed from sin, have it removed from us, is because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, the bread, and this unleavened bread, this pure bread, has nothing in it to contaminate it. None of the symbolism of sin is, is in it, right? 
That's just one part of the Passover typology. It's just one part of the teaching illustration of the elements of Passover. The other part that they are to look to and include in the ritual every year, year after year after year, is not just the consumption of unleavened bread, but is to look to the shed blood of a lamb. Going back to Exodus chapter 12, we read about this two weeks ago. The people were told, you must go and select a spotless one-year-old lamb, which, as we said, was very valuable in that time. And on the 14th day of the month, on the Passover day itself, at the start of this week-long feast, they were to slaughter the lamb and to look upon the blood. Exodus 12, 7. God tells the people, then they shall take some of the blood and shall put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. The reason for the shedding of this blood and placing it upon the door is clear in verse 13. This blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I, God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. On this Passover day that we talked about two weeks ago, the blood of a lamb was shed as a sacrificial substitute for the people of God. The lamb was the one taking the punishment of death that God was going to bring upon the rebellious sinners who were persisting in their rebellion. This sacrifice was going to be made by this lamb so that God's people who were trusting in him by his word would receive mercy instead of judgment. So notice that this element, this blood of the lamb, was not just to occur at the very first Passover, but was actually to be a continued part of the ongoing practice of remembering God's work year after year in the celebration of the festival. Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 to 27. So you shall observe this rite as a statue for you and your sons forever. When you come into the land that Yahweh will give you, as he has promised, you shall still keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Like, what, what's the point of this? Why are we doing this? That's the question. You shall say then, it is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So what God does in establishing this in Exodus chapter 12 is that he is marking out the year every single year from this moment forward, the very start on the 14th day of the first month, the people of God are to sacrifice a lamb, to look upon its shed blood and then eat the unleavened bread. And in doing that, they are to remember who their God is, what their God has said and what he has done. And as the years go by and as the generations roll on, this is to be the mechanism by which the message of who God is and what he said and what he's done is passed on. For every single time this ritual is undertaken, they are to tell their children, this is what we mean by this practice. Here is what our God has done. These statutes were designed to help the people of God remember and teach others about who their God is what he has said, and what he has done. So just as the sacrifice of the lamb was a crucial part of the Passover for the Israelites, going back to 1 Corinthians 5, Paul makes that connection to the sacrifice of Jesus, the true Passover lamb, and how central that is to the lives of his people now. It's only because of Jesus' 
death, his substitutionary atonement, that God's people can be changed and cleansed from our natural sinful state, infected with the leaven of sin that touches and permeates through everything. It's only that we can be changed from that into righteous, pure, holy, unleavened lives because the blood of Jesus was spilled. Like we can actually be changed from leavened, sinful, to unleavened, without sin, because the perfect sinlessness of Christ is imputed to his people through the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God as our substitute. And that, that's a really powerful thought if we understand what that's telling us. It should be awe-inspiring, it should be worship-producing within us. Because these really are incredible truths. What God's establishing for his people in the Old Testament is a practice of remembrance and teaching that's, that's given here and then carried on. It's carried with them as they leave Egypt all through the wandering in the wilderness. It's a practice that's continued throughout their establishment in the promised land as they spread out and build homes and establish in the nation. And it carries on through the ages of the kings and the prophets. And it goes on and on and on all the way until Jesus Christ himself comes in his earthly ministry upon this planet. And it's there with Christ as he has come, God incarnate in the flesh, and he establishes the new covenant that he finally unveils the full meaning and the full purpose of this practice that's been going on in the Passover celebration for generations upon generations upon generations. And he gives to us an understanding that the Passover was always meant to lead us to what we now call the Lord's Supper. This enduring, ongoing ordinance of the church that every church that's a true Christian church is called to practice to this very day. So with all this background in mind from Exodus chapter 12, listen to how Jesus interacts with the Passover meal and what Jesus does with the Passover meal in the gospel account given to us by Luke. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 1, says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Jumping to verse 7, we read, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, so the 14th day of the month that we were just hearing about. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. Then they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, fully furnished. Prepare it there. They went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table. The apostles were with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, unleavened bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
So we understand when we come to this gospel account and this, this action that's taking place here, there's a connection made between the plan of God and salvation and the events of the Passover historically. The very day of remembrance that God established in Exodus chapter 12, the very day he redeemed Israel out of Egypt was also the day his perfect lamb would be slain to deliver and save his people from the bondage of sin forever. This was part of his plan all those years ago. The very last meal that Jesus would eat upon this earth in his earthly ministry was this Passover meal that he established in Exodus chapter 12. And this memorial had been ongoing, practiced through all these generations, all up until this time when Jesus came, but it was not perfectly understood. It was not fully grasped what the symbolism was supposed to really reveal to them until Jesus himself ate this meal and spoke these words that we just read. And he taught his disciples, his followers, you and I who now read and see this in the story, that the Passover meal was always meant to be a pointer to the gospel. The elements that were celebrated in the Passover meal itself of the lamb that was killed, the blood that it shed, and the unleavened bread that were to be eaten, those are both pointers for us to Jesus Christ. They both lead us to Jesus when they are rightly understood. And both of them should cause us then to examine our own lives when we engage with these elements in this ongoing practice to stir our remembrance of who God is, what he has said, and what he has done. That's the whole point of this. That we would remember, that we would reflect upon Christ, upon his suffering, that we would understand how we are saved, what that means for us, that we would be challenged every time we take of the Lord's Supper to renew our commitment and our passion in following him. These things are not just a practice to be done whenever we fit them into the calendar throughout the year. These are important moments to stir remembrance, to create passion in us. We should long to take the Lord's Supper at every opportunity we ever could. Going back to Exodus chapter 12, there's one final thing for us to notice about the establishment of the Passover and how that also connects to the Lord's Supper. And that is that this practice was given to God's people specifically and particularly. These things were not meant for everyone. It was not meant to become a common practice, just like a typical holiday meal that you and I may have. I mean, we, we had a wonderful 4th of July uh, holiday this year. Craig and Judy invited us over, and, and over 100 people showed up, right? And it was just, hey, if you want to come, come and, and eat and enjoy the food, and it was wonderful. It was an open invitation, right? And people came and enjoyed those wonderful things. This was not like that. This wasn't just, hey, anyone who's interested in, in partaking of the Passover celebration, come, come and be a part. There were some qualifications given here. This practice was given to God's people specifically. And then we'll note, their background, the origin, where they came from, that, that's not to be considered, but what is to be considered is their status now. They can practice this, this ordinance. They can practice partaking of the Passover meal after they have become one of God's people personally, but not before. Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 48. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover, no foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. But no foreigner or hired hand may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it this festival. 
If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised first. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So what's repeated here in this simple text is that there's a clear marker that God gives. Those who are circumcised may partake. Those who are not circumcised may not. And, and if that's like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? Well, that's the Old Testament way of saying those who are part of the people of God are invited to participate, in fact, commanded to participate in the celebration of this festival, who've gone through the process of identifying with Yahweh and his people of joining the kingdom and people of God from whatever background they had before. That doesn't matter. This wasn't an ethnocentric thing. This was anyone who would come and submit to Yahweh and be part of the people of God. They are invited in, but those who are still outside the kingdom, those who have not submitted to Yahweh, those who do not bear the sign of being one of his people, they are not to partake of the Passover. If they're still a foreigner, if they're still outside the kingdom, if they're a hired worker that you have a relationship with, if they're a friend from another religious group, you can't bring them in to celebrate this with you. Only my people shall participate, God says. That's Exodus chapter 12, but that truth still applies to us today. With the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we're told in the New Testament to invite all of God's people to participate with us but to warn and to not include those who are still outside of God's people as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. For some reason, Christians, many Christians throughout history, and many to this day will try to ignore these words from Paul here or try to change them to mean something that they clearly do not mean. What this text tells us is that here in just a moment, as we in this church will take the Lord's Supper to remember and reflect upon the meaning of these items, that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for his people through his sacrificial death. Those who are called to participate are all of God's people, but only God's people. If you're not a Christian, if you don't grasp what these things represent and point to, if it just looks like a ritual, if it just looks like an unsatisfying snack, if it just looks like something that everyone around you is doing, so, so you'll join in, you don't understand how these point to the Savior, if you don't understand how these lead to Christ, if you're not trusting in Him and what these symbols represent, then do not take them. Because you have literally nothing good to gain by taking the Lord's Supper without faith. The cracker of unleavened bread will not fill you up. The small cup of juice will not quench your thirst. You will not earn any favor from God because it's not about participation in the ritual itself. It's about the faith that we have as we approach these things, trusting in the Savior that they represent. And this verse here that we read from Paul actually warns unbelievers clearly to take these things without faith, without seeing Jesus represented through them is actually sin, and it only brings further judgment upon us. So I'm going to ask two members of our church this morning to come, Reed Plunkett and Joel Swisher, if you would come. They're going to serve the elements to us this morning as we prepare to take them. 
And as I say, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, this is for God's people, as we just heard. That doesn't mean you need to be a member of this church. If you are a Christian in relationship, identifying with God, you're welcome to take of the Supper. If you are not a Christian, then let these things go by. Gentlemen, if you'll begin to serve this morning. We live here and now in a very privileged moment in history where we have not only this tradition and practice that stretches back many, many generations, but we have also the full meaning of what we are doing explained to us in the scriptures. We understand from the word of God himself, through the the words Jesus spoke on that very night that he was betrayed and gave himself up in this sacrificial death, that this bread and cup are to remind us of him. These things that we hold in our hands, speak to believers of the broken body of Jesus, the perfect one, the unleavened bread of God. And they remind us of that shed blood he poured out as the perfect lamb who could atone for the sins of his people. We're to think of him, to remember how he has traded his perfections for all of our sins, taking what condemns us and giving us full salvation and transformation as we hold these elements. This moment, for those of us who understand and believe and trust in Jesus Christ, is a powerful, special moment of remembrance. We are to be remembering and reflecting upon who our God is, what our God has said, and what he has done. We'll go back just a few verses before the warning that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians to read about how he commands the church to participate in this ordinance and remind us of those very words of Jesus that we read from Luke chapter 22. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and 24 tell us, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Christians understand that this must be an act of remembrance for us. Not just a ritual, not just an activity, but a time, a moment of intentional reflection and remembrance. So you take this piece of bread and you look at it, it's unleavened, just as God instructed it to be, and reflect with me for a moment that this unleavened bread you hold speaks a reminder to you and I of how unclean our own nature is. That sin is naturally so pervasive in each one of us. We do not deserve to come before God and receive his love because of our own sinful actions. We are undeserving. We are leavened. And those little sins that we tolerate and enjoy so much, they make us wholly unclean and unworthy. Let the bread remind you of that truth, but now cast your thoughts towards Christ. The truth that he is the true unleavened bread of life. He's perfect, without sin, truly holy and righteous. And now, Christian, reflect in this moment upon his sacrifice, his love, his work for us as his people. How he gives to us from outside of us. This isn't in us yet. This is from outside of us. It's his perfection, his righteousness that he is giving to us what we do not possess naturally. This bread you hold speaks to the gift that he gives us when he takes our sins upon himself. When he dies in our place. When he gives us 
perfect, sinless status before God. We can be made unleavened today because he who is without sin offers that covering to us who would trust in him today. Let's take the bread together. In verse 25, we read in the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So again, Christian, this is an important act of remembrance. It's not just the second part of the practice. We don't just take the bread and now the cup. No, this is a moment and opportunity for you and I to remember the overwhelming price of our sins. It was the blood of Jesus, the life of the Son of God, the true Lamb of God that had to be sacrificed in order to bring us our salvation. My friend, sin is costly. Remember your salvation by looking upon the shed blood of the Lamb of God and understand the perfections that we are given, the grace that's poured out to us. That's not just a nice idea to celebrate and hear. This is a costly purchase by the blood of God himself shed that you and I would live transformed lives outside of this room as well. As we observe the blood of Christ through this simple, tangible reminder, just juice in the cup this morning. But it reminds us of how costly it was for Christ to give us our salvation. May our faith and trust in his mercy, which we receive by his word, be grown as we observe the cost that he paid for us. Let's take the cup together. Worship team, if you'd come and prepare to lead us in a final song of response this morning, Christian, you have heard and you have participated in these moments of remembrance of the gospel. Now is the moment for us to respond to these truths that we are remembering, that we are reflecting upon and ask the Lord what it is that he would have us do to apply these things in our lives, to live out in light of who he is and what he said and what he has done when we leave this place. The altar's are open if you want to come and pray. I'd love to pray with you if you would come and let me know. Let's respond before we leave here as we reflect and we remember the price, we remember the sacrifice, and we ask the Lord to help us now live in light of it when we leave this room together. Let's sing and worship together. Father, we thank you for this great plan that you have unfolded all throughout history, that we can look to Exodus chapter 12 and see these practices be put in place to, that would prepare and lead your people to the cross and to the, the great work of salvation you accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you came and you died for our sins. You sacrificed yourself as the perfect lamb of God that we would be given perfection, our sins removed and your righteousness imputed to us. What a great exchange you have done for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us now to live in light of these amazing truths. 
That, that as we leave this place, you would push deeply into our souls these truths of the word that we have studied today, that they would shape us, they would form us, that they would be at the forefront of our minds as we live our lives and make them daily center around who you are, what you have said, and what you've done. Help us to live as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding the price paid and the demands that that puts upon us and the great privilege we have of proclaiming your word that changes lives to all those around us who need salvation. We thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the cross that we have celebrated today. It's in your beautiful, powerful name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.